Well, good morning, Willow Park Church. And uh, I don't know if, you, if this is a thing. Happy Palm Sunday. Um, as we're running up towards Easter, I'm looking forward to sharing the second part of the uh, message that I gave last week. And if you didn't hear that message, I encourage you to go online and, uh, and have a listen. It's just a great way to prepare our hearts towards Easter. Uh, for those of you who are new, this is my, uh, my name is Glenn. This is my name. It is Glenn. Uh, and I'm one of the pastors here, and a special welcome if you're looking and watching online as well. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 19, and uh, we're going to jump into the second part of this series of kind of as we walk towards uh, Easter and Jesus coming into Jerusalem. We looked last week at Jesus, the King of that city, and the implications of the gospel and the implications of him working towards uh, the crucifixion. And and uh, this week, we're going to look at just this next section, and, uh, and I'm believing that God will speak to us clearly through it. Luke chapter 19, and uh, it's going to read a couple of verses, and um, that's not the right scripture, so let's just leave that one. I'll read it to you. Luke chapter 19, verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. My house shall be a house of prayer. And then if you know this story, what happens is this this driving out, if you look at the different gospels, this is a Jesus that is not commonly seen. This is Jesus kind of going a bit crazy. He is kicking over tables, he's driving out people from the temple, he's yelling, you know, and really this uh, this scripture, come to me all who are labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest, and it carries on and, and says, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Where is the meekness, the gentleness, the, the image that we have of Jesus in this image where he's seemingly Jesus who needs some anger management, Jesus who needs some counseling like calm down Jesus what's the what's the big deal now to just put this into perspective as to what this might look like I was uh, I was thinking and and uh, trying to figure out uh, an application as to how we could visualize what it was like for Jesus to drive uh, the people out of the temple uh, a couple of weeks ago and this has become quite famous because many of you now have been quoting this to me uh, many men actually said you know your sermon really spoke to me when you talked about Ikea being like hell so I'm really grateful that the important parts of my sermon are landing and that you're remembering. So if Ikea is like hell, then heaven on earth is spelt C-O-S-T-C-O. Because Costco is by far, I believe, one of the best shops placed on this planet earth, heaven on earth, for a guy, you know, you can keep your, your lampshades at Ikea and your fancy tea towels and your flower arrangement stuff and spatulas and all that nonsense. At Costco, you get free food, big TVs and all the power tools and kayaks and ice cream tubs the size of Saskatchewan that you ever want. You can save so much money spending thousands at Costco. And you know, I was talking, we were laughing, me and my wife, I said, you know, you, you know when you've been married a long time, we've been married 23 years this year and together 26 years, I said, you know you've been married a long time when going to Costco is actually a dating option. <laughs> How many of you, let's be honest please, 
Hands, yes. Yeah, and those of you who haven't raised your hands, I know the truth. Costco on Christmas Eve, though, is not somewhere I would go. How many of you have done that? Yeah, I don't know if you want to admit that either, because that's usually last-minute panic shopping. And I, and I googled an image of what Costco might look like on a busy day, and I was thinking, you know, that doesn't look busy enough for me um, uh, when, it, when it comes to Christmas Eve. And then you've got the big screen TVs. It's just set out exactly the same. Just imagine if I challenged you just with your own physicality and your own voice and your own body to clear out a packed Costco. Just you. How angry and big do you need to be in order to be able to clear out somewhere as busy as Costco? I mean, that is serious energy. And that is the image I want you to have. This isn't Jesus coming into a a pleasant school or church uh, hall and gently asking people, three or four people, to, to leave. This is Jesus going into what would be the equivalent of Costco, this place where there is all sorts of money changing and, and people buying stuff and clearing it out just by his own physicality. He is mad. So what's going on here? And what does this have to do with Easter? And why is it linked together with Palm Sunday? Because Palm Sunday is about celebrating and Hosanna and palm trees. And I remember going to church when I was a kid in Sunday school. We used to make the little, uh, the little crosses out of palms. Or if we couldn't afford that, it would be out of paper. and take them home, stick them on the fridge. And, and, so why is this Jesus going crazy in the temple connected with Palm Sunday? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So the first thing I want to just show you and give you some background, some frame of reference, if you like, is to talk, first of all, about the temple. The temple was and still is in Jerusalem everything to the Jewish people, everything. To this day, they still pray three times a day for the reestablishment of the temple in Jerusalem. It was first built by Solomon, and this is a, a graphic as to what it might have looked like. This beautiful, intricately built, and you can read in the Old Testament as to every detail down to the minutiae was planned by God and built by Solomon, and it got destroyed in 586 B.C., but though, so the temple that we're looking at in the New Testament was actually the second temple built by Herod, and he really went to town on it. It was eventually destroyed in 70 BC. I want to show you a, this is actually a scale model that somebody has built of the temple and the temple grounds. You can see the temple itself right here, and the outer courts, and then the, the walls around it, and you can kind of get the idea of the scale of the place. This isn't some dinky little church in the middle of Jerusalem. This is a major landmark, and uh, I put this next picture up because I just thought it was, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. That's the guy who built it. He's either really, really big, or this is a very, very good model. And uh, these walls that were surrounding the actual walls, this, the, the, the temple courtyards were the size of six football fields. You could fit up to a million people in there. Bearing in mind that up to two million Jews would descend on Jerusalem at the time of Passover, which is when Jesus was there. This place is huge. The walls are up to five meters thick. Stones, individual stones, 400 tons in weight. And in places, the height of the walls are 20 stories high. 
the, store, the temple itself, and this is the courtyard of the inner temple. This is where the, the kind of the Costco scene happened. This is where Jesus was clearing the temple out. This place was so beautiful that in the sun, this is a computer graphic, in the, in the sun, you couldn't actually look at it because it was made out of such beautiful white, pure marble and gold. There were two reasons for the temple. Not only was it magnificent to look at, but there was two biblical reasons placed by God in the Old Testament that the Jews recognized for the presence of the temple. And the first reason is this. It was a place where you could have a personal encounter with God. It was a place where people could come and have their sins forgiven and have an encounter with God. And it was a place connected with that of sacrifice. That was the two reasons. God, his, his, uh, his glory would turn up in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and the sacrifices that would take place by the high priest happened. That is the purpose, to encounter God. The only way you could encounter God was actually through sacrifices. So the second thing we need to understand is why did God require sacrifices? This is very important as we come working towards why Jesus did what he did. So so bear with me. You can't come to God, the Old Testament tells us, in any old way. You can't just approach him, high-five him, and expect that God's going to encounter you. Or you can if you want to die. That's what happened in the Old Testament. You treat God badly, you die. It's very clear. And so you can't just kind of saunter into God's presence and expect for God to give you a big kind of man hug, three pats on the back, and say, hey, that's all good, let's come sit down, let's chat. That's not the way it works. There had to be a sacrifice. There has to be a way of coming close to God, dealing with sin so that he could actually accept you into his presence. And so this blood sacrifice had to be made. Now you might go, hang on a second, I thought God was a God of love. Why does he need this blood sacrifice? If he's a God of love, why doesn't he just accept everyone in? Why doesn't God just forgive everyone? Why is it that if you live a good life, you just get to go to heaven? You know, that, Glenn, that seems reasonable to me. I'm a good person. The first question I would ask when it comes to your goodness is who are you comparing yourself to? I'm fantastic compared to him. Have you seen his life? I'm wonderful compared to her. Do you know what her issues are? Look at me. I deserve to go into heaven. I deserve just to be brought in. Well, God says, yeah, but... I compare you to me, God. So you don't just get to come in. There has to be a sacrifice. So I thought God was a God of love. I heard this illustration this week and I thought it fits so well. Imagine, if you will, that you adopted a beautiful baby girl, an orphan. And you dedicated your life to this little girl. You gave everything that she needed. You uh, gave her clothes. You gave her a, a loving home. You gave her a good education. You were close. Uh, it, it, was, it was beautiful. And then the time comes, you actually have put aside money every month out of your hard-earned salary to send her off to college, to university. And so the day comes when she leaves and she's excited to go and you transfer all the money over to her and then she leaves and then you don't hear from her for two, three, four years. 
You hear through the grapevine that she hasn't actually gone to university. She's just gone to the next city and squandered it and parted all the money away and she's living the high life. And after four years, there's a knock on the door and you open the door and there is your daughter and she comes in, she sits on the couch and she says, hey mom, hey dad, what's for dinner? Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be like, hang, hang on a second. We've got some stuff that we need to deal with. You can't, you can't just come back and just expect everything to be okay. We've been worried about you. You took everything that we had and you squandered it. There's a separation in our relationship now that needs to be dealt with. Your wrongdoing, and she or her reply is, but I thought you loved me. I do love you, but that doesn't excuse the behavior. We have to deal with the behavior. You see, if you believe in God, you believe that you have a creator, that you're not an accident, and he has given you everything that you need in order to live life. He's given you breath, he's given you skills, he's given you time, he's given you uh, gifting, everything you own, everything you will own, everything that you experience is, is his, his gift to you. That when you look out on the beautiful lake and it takes your breath away, that's his gift to you if you believe in God. Even in a slight way, if you believe in God, you are not an accident. His, this life was given to you. But what we have done is we've gone to the next city. And we've squandered that. We've taken that which we have been given and we make it ours And we don't think everything is for him and and to him. We think it's all about us and life terminates on us and we dishonor him. We live life our own way, just like this young lady. So we look at our money and we go, well, that's mine. We look at our possessions, well, they're mine. We look at our time, that's mine. We look at our talents, that's mine too. And then our culture goes even further. We look at sexuality, intellect, and go, yeah, that, that's, that's all about me as well. And we go to another city, and we squander it, and we do what we want. And then we want to approach God and go, hey, God, what's for dinner? And, you know, I'm having a bit of trouble. I'm feeling a little low these days. And I seem to remember that you were really good at handling this stuff. So let's have a holy high five and pretend it all didn't happen. Amen? You know, and you know, I'll I'll just kind of, I'll get into heaven. We'll watch movies together. It'll all be good. Now I'm exaggerating and that's just silly. But I'm trying to prove a point. That people approach God in a very flippant way. And expect that he owes us something somehow. Just like that girl seems to expect her parents owed her something. Because, quote, I thought I loved you. She, I thought you loved me. And God says, no. Your error, your choices, your sin have created a separation that has to be dealt with. So God in the Old Testament formed a way so that these people could approach him. And it was through the sacrificial system. So their sin, you could actually read it. They called it the day, the day of uh, atonement, where, where they would come and the high priest would lay hands on, on two spotless animals and then one of them was sacrificed. So all the sin of the people were applied to the spotless animal and the sin died with the animal. 
And so this is just a, a trajectory from that. So people would come and they would get a sacrifice and they would sacrifice at Passover so that their sins could be forgiven. It was God's system of sacrifice so they could approach him. Otherwise, God would be unjust and that would make him not God. So he made a way, a blood payment, and he would honor it and he would allow access But Hebrews tells us in chapter 10 that that sacrificial system only goes so far because it actually doesn't clear our conscience. And we have to keep on sacrificing. That was the problem the Jews were having. It was only temporary. So if that's what the temple is about, it's about sacrifice, it's about encountering God's presence, it's this amazing, beautiful place, it's busy that day. Why was Jesus going so crazy? What was his problem? The first place he goes to, the Bible tells us, is the temple after entering the city. Because his intention is to transform the temple back into its original purpose. Remember I said those, to transform the temple back into its original purpose of the presence of God, a place of prayer, and a place of sacrifice. You see, the Jews needed to buy sacrifices. There's nothing wrong with that. They'd traveled many, many miles, and they wouldn't have brought animals with them because the sacrifice had to be blemish-free. It had to be a certain type of animal. And so people were selling these animals, and you couldn't buy them with any old money. You had to use temple money. And so that's why the money exchanging was happening, and people had set up, and they were selling animals. Nothing wrong with all these things. So what's Jesus' problem then? If these things are needed, nothing wrong with them, and they were recognized as a sacrificial system, and they were doing it to get into the presence of God, why is Jesus so angry? Well, very simply, it's where these things were located. They didn't belong inside the temple. God had always provided sacrifices outside the temple. They had brought them inside the temple. They didn't belong inside the temple. What belonged inside the temple was prayer, encountering God, and sacrifice. Not these other things. The externals don't belong. So our first application this morning is simply this. Is this like your life? Is this temple scene like your life? That there are external things that don't belong inside the temple of your life that you think are going to get you closer to God, where actually they don't. They keep you away from God. That you think these externals, many of which are good things, being brought into the Holy of Holies, if you like, that you think that they're important. It's what God wants. They're not bad things. Maybe it's really busy things in church. Maybe it's everything, that all the programs, and you go to every one of them. Maybe it's you reading your Bible, like, incessantly and legalistically. Maybe it's just volunteering the community. Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your wife or your husband. If all those good things come into the temple where only God belongs, then God has an issue with that because those things don't bring you closer to God. See, lots of externals and lots of activity but lacking real connection with God. Then what Jesus does is he starts rearranging the furniture. That's a very polite way for saying, and I say this humbly, that Jesus goes crazy. 
He is so passionate about what the temple is meant to be about that he's willing to make a massive scene and throw people out physically, kicking over tables in order to get the temple back to its original purpose, which is the presence of God. I hope you're already seeing the metaphor here, that we are the temple of God. We have brought externals into our lives, and Jesus is passionate about rearranging our furniture, bringing a divine ruin into our life if necessary, to bring us back to the original purpose, which after all, is the most beautiful thing that we should be living in. Imagine if you invited me over for dinner, and I came, and I was dressed nicely, and I sat there politely, and you were kind of moving around, getting ready for dinner, and I'm sat there, and I'm going, hmm. I like this place. This place had a really, it's got a nice feel to this home. You've got a beautiful home and you say, thank you very much. And then while you go out and you just say, I won't be a minute, I've just got to go and do something in the kitchen. I get up and I start shifting your couch around. Actually, because I think it belongs there. Not there. And I move that and I take the TV off the wall and put it in the corner. And I move the chair. Now you come back into that house and you go, uh, um, Pastor Glenn. We like you. Your accent's a bit weird, but we like you. Uh, what are you doing? Because this is my house, and I wanted my couch there, not over there. Now, you'd have every right to complain because that's your house. See, only the owner has the authority to do whatever he or she wants to with the furniture. You see, Jesus said, my house. This is not your house. This is my house. So not only, we heard last week, is he now happy to be called the son of David, which is a messianic title, which is mind-blowing that suddenly he's now aligning himself with all those messianic promises. He's now going, this temple, it's mine. So he comes in and he starts acting like he's God and that he owns the place because he is. And he does. And he starts moving the furniture around. Friends, if you are a Christian, the Bible says really clearly that you are now his house. That when he died on the cross and all your sin was transferred onto him and it died with him, he gave you righteousness, newness of life. The promise is he comes and lives in you. He is now king of your life. Your life is no longer your own. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's his life. It's his house. It's his temple. So he has every right to do whatever he wants to do with the things that I have brought from the outside in. But Glenn, I I believe in Jesus. I like the singing. I like reading my Bible. I like my community group. I like this church. I love that we get food every now and again on Sundays. I love all that. I love going to the conferences. But, you know, I really struggle that I don't get to decide what I get to do. So I want to be lovingly, pastorally, pastorally clear with you. Based on what the Bible says, so if you, and I don't think you'll complain, because I think you'll agree with me, but you're going to have to take it up with a higher authority. So I don't know what his email address is, um, but you can take it up with him, God. You see, there is no roundtable discussion when it comes to what is right and what is wrong when it comes to being a Christian. There's no let's have coffee 
together and create a win-win. There's no, well, I see your point, Glenn. Yeah, sleeping around, I, I can actually see how that can be beneficial. So we'll keep that on the table. We'll keep that in the temple. That's okay. All those other things that you still want to keep in your life, you know, the, the anger, the bitterness, we'll keep that in as well. Because you're right, that, that probably does belong. See, God doesn't do that. Because bringing the externals, those good things often, into our lives are actually ruining the original purpose for our lives. Because he's king, he owns the place. Because he loves us, he knows that those things that we've brought in don't belong because they're taking us away from the original purpose. So he's going to deal with those things because he wants us to be where we should be. It's because he loves us. And can I say, sometimes him kicking over the furniture, let me change that. Most, if not all of the times that he kicks over furniture, it hurts. It means that we've had to go through something where he's removed something that doesn't belong. See, he's passionate about us connecting with God authentically. If one of your children or grandchildren or relatives was getting hurt, you don't stand there and go, ah, well, you know, that's okay. If somebody is hurting them, buckle up. I'm going to do everything I can to help this kid. And that's what Jesus' response is in the temple. He's kicking over tables. He brings conviction into our lives. Things that were okay a few minutes ago suddenly are not okay anymore. Things that were okay a few years ago, he starts just working on us gently sometimes saying, you know what, that doesn't belong. I'm your king. If you want to live this life in the way you, you were created for, we need to deal with that. And sometimes he just moves the furniture really slowly to the door. And then other times... He grabs hold of the thing, and he throws it like an Olympic shot putter, cosmically. And you're like, whoa, what just happened? Through tears and sorrow, your life feels like it's falling apart. And Jesus says, you just got to trust me, because that didn't belong in the Holy of Holies. So is there anything wrong with the money changing and the animals being sold? Absolutely not. They just don't belong on the inside. So if there's one section of my sermon I want you to remember, and hopefully quote to me rather than Ikea or Costco, is this. What externals have you brought into the Holy of Holies in the hope that they will save you? What external good things have you brought into the center of your life with the viewpoint that if I can just maintain this, then I'm going to find hope. I'm going to find joy. I'm going to find peace. I'm going to find connection with God. I'm going to find my answer, my forgiveness in this thing. What have you brought from the outside? A good thing into the center, therefore making it something that does not belong, that Jesus needs to deal with. What's in your holy of holies? Parents. Is it your children? Are your children in the Holy of Holies that somehow you believe that they are your answer? That if you could just manage to bring this kid up well, then you will feel better about yourself because you have been brought up in a way where you feel like you've failed. You feel like you've shamed. Your mom and dad treated you badly. You've made mistakes. This kid is not going to make the same mistakes. You bring him or her into the center of your world and you worship that thinking that is your answer. Can I tell you? They will hurt you. They will disappoint you. They will let you down. What then? 
However, the most loving thing you can do for your child is to keep your child in the external, making the Holy of Holies the place where the most important thing in your life is Jesus Christ and what he has done. The most loving thing you can do for your child is to love Jesus more. And he will challenge that. And he will kick over that table, and it may well, it will be painful. Is it your business? Is it your degree? Is it your relationships? Is it your husband? Is it your wife? Is it your dreams and aspirations that they have become center? Can I tell you, they will not save you. Only Jesus. Only Jesus and his presence belongs in the Holy of Holies. So that is why I get passionate just here. Just imagine the passion that Jesus has over you for you to deal with those things. For you to bring those things to him and say, Jesus, I love my children. I love my business. I love my health. I love my fitness. I love, you know, can I just say this? I'm not going to say this for myself, but sometimes the Holy of Holies is what we look like. Do we, are we honestly believing that the way that we look is actually going to forgive us of our sins? That we're so passionate about what we look like and we tuck and pull and lift and do, you know, thinking that's the answer? It's not. And our culture especially tells that lie. Good things on the inside that should be on the outside. So finally, Jesus is the temple. He is the sacrifice. You see, Jesus said in John 2, verse 19, he says this, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's referring to himself, but he's referring to what the temple is. It's the presence of God. You see, Jesus actually destroyed the Jewish temple in 33 AD. It still stood for another 40 years, but the reality of what it was there for was destroyed because Jesus became the sacrifice of all sacrifices. And unlike those temporary sacrifices, it wasn't something that had to be continually done. He was the sacrifice that ended all sacrifices. So we could actually have access into the presence of God and God living in us as a daily reality because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for his love for you and for me. We need to remember that he is the temple, that he is the presence of God. A place to meet God, a place of sacrifice, which is what the temple was for. Jesus declares, I am the way to meet God. If you don't know Jesus this morning, the very thing that you are desperately looking for in life, all those things, that that sense of fulfillment and purpose and joy and peace, those things have been hardwired into humans. And what we do is we look desperately for ways in which those things can be fulfilled. And we look at sex, we look at intellect, we look at finances, we look at our looks or our health, and we all think those are the things that are going to bring us the purpose and the freedom that we were created for. But Jesus says this, no, 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 I am the only way you're going to get that. Because billions of people have gone before us hoping to find the answer in all that, and it doesn't work. Let's work on the furniture. He is the new sacrificial system. 
Remember, that sacrifice was there so that we could gain access to God. You, friends, will not gain access to God in any other way than through Jesus. And if you read the Bible with an open mind and heart, and it will change your heart, and if you will speak to people around you who have experienced what access to Jesus is like, they will tell you the same thing. He is the only way. And you know what? Sometimes... Oftentimes, it's difficult because he moves that furniture. He never stops working. He says, you know, I will be faithful to complete the job that I've started in you. It's like, that's his purpose in our lives, to make us more like him. So do you sense that this Easter? That is the Easter message. Jesus coming into the city and declaring he is king. And then Jesus coming into the temple, our lives, and saying, I'm king of this as well. I will bring a beautiful divine ruin, but the benefits that you will experience will take your breath away. But don't be fooled. If you do not bow to him, if you do not ask for forgiveness, if you do not realize that you're actually filling your life with externals, you don't come to him and submit yourself to him and plead for forgiveness, then you will not gain access. But the wonderful thing is, is he makes it simple. Before you leave this place today, you can actually gain access to Jesus, maybe for the first time. That you just pray that prayer, you ask for forgiveness, you believe in his name, and the Bible says he is faithful to forgive. Faithful to forgive, because he looks to his son's sacrifice and says, that's enough. That's all I need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we recognize your kingship. We thank you, Jesus, that you are still in the business of changing lives. And Lord, it's my prayer right now, even as I humbly stand before you, that Holy Spirit, you will be working on people's hearts and minds. That everybody who can hear my voice will come under conviction. And Lord, I I pray on behalf of this congregation, Lord, I'm sorry for bringing externals into the Holy of Holies and making them ultimate. Father, forgive me. Just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you just, if you're a Christian here this morning and you know that you have externals, here's, here's what I want you to do. It's tomorrow morning. Just sit down before him. Read some Psalms or some scripture. Quiet yourself and say, Lord, what have I brought into the Holy of Holies? And he will be faithful in pointing those things out. And then you ask for forgiveness over each one of them. And then you know what? You're probably going to have to do the same thing on Tuesday morning and on Wednesday morning, and on Thursday morning. But you'll find the more that you do that, the more that you live under a life of confession, 
that he will faithfully move that furniture out. And then suddenly one morning, there'll be one less thing on your list. 